That was beautiful, beautiful. And the passage that I'd like to draw your attention to today is from the book of Ephesians, um, chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, it'll also be on the screen and you can follow along there. I'm going to pick up partway through verse 25, Ephesians 5, verse 25. The Apostle Paul writes this. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. Um, if we haven't met, really glad you're here. My name's Carson Cobb. I'm one of the pastors here, especially if you joined us last week for Easter and you're back. We'd love to maybe meet you at the end of the service uh, if you'd be up for that. Uh, this year, it might be helpful for you to know that our church has been focusing on the theme of treasuring the church. Uh, in an age of disconnection and even disillusionment with the church for many people, we've been looking at what the Bible has to say about the church. And throughout the course of the year, we've stopped uh, along the way out of our regular series to look at a handful of key images or metaphors in the New Testament that help us understand the true nature of the church. Not just as we experience the church with all of its flaws and struggles, with all of our flaws and struggles, but what the church really is by its very nature. So at the first of the year, we looked at what it means for the church to be the family of God real, like true brothers and sisters adopted by, by a true father. And then again in February, we saw that the church is portrayed in the scriptures as the temple of God, the place where God's presence dwells and where God and humanity can meet again because of Jesus Christ. And now today we're gonna to consider another metaphor, one that helps us understand what kind of relationship Jesus wants with his church. What's his attitude towards the church? How does he intend to relate to her? What's his heart toward her? Well, scripture answers this by providing us with a stunning, rich, tender metaphor when it describes the church as the bride of Christ. Now, I guess it is a little ironic that this message fell on the weekend of the women's retreat where like half of our ladies are gone and our attendance ratio of men to women gets a little skewed in the direction of the Y chromosome. So, fellas, you know, I'm sorry if this week's metaphor feels a little strange to you, but that's just how it goes sometimes. Uh, scripture calls all Christians, male and female, sons of God to help us understand the inheritance that we have in Christ. And so today, the tables get turned on us and we have to get our minds around what it means to be married to Jesus, to be the bride of Christ. So I want you to notice from the image itself and then from the passage, uh, three things. First, Jesus' desire for the church. Second, Jesus' design for the church. And then last, his demand for the church. So Jesus' desire for the church, like his, his love and his affection for the church, Second, his design for the church, what he intends for us, what his purpose is for the church. And then lastly, what he demands, what he asks, what he wants from the church in response. So first, Jesus' desire for the church. Now, if you know your Bible well, then you know that the section that I just read from the letter 
uh, of Ephesians is actually part of a larger section dealing on the relationship between husbands and wives. So verse 25 starts with a phrase that I left out, which says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And the larger section goes on to work out in more detail the analogy of husband and wife as a type of portrait or live display of the relationship between Christ and his church. And I intentionally left that part about marriage out, not because it's not incredibly important, but because today I want us to slow down and concentrate on just how it is that Christ has loved the church. And of course, if you are a husband and you slow down and think about this for very long, be ready to get wrecked because this is the type of love we're called to and it's a very high bar. So what is Jesus' desire for the church? How does he feel towards her? Well, it says, Christ loved the church. Now, this may be the most obvious thing to point out here, but the fact that God would choose to portray the church as Jesus' bride shows you something so critical about Jesus. And maybe for some of you, clears up a great misunderstanding about him. And that is this. Jesus Christ does not want to relate to his church only as a king, only as a master or a ruler, though he is those things too, but also as a husband, as a lover. Jesus desires faithful, passionate union with his people. He's not just interested in our service for him or our work for him. This isn't mere business for Jesus. We're not just being used as a means to some other end. Jesus treasures the church as his beloved bride. And so if you're a Christian, do you think of your Christian life in this way, as being married to Jesus? (laughs) That you are part of his bride. And this has stunning implications for how you think about God and how you think about marriage itself, whether you're married or unmarried. For example, if you are single and you're a Christian, then you need to know that you already have in your relationship with Jesus Christ right now, the substance of which marriage is but the shadow. You're not a second class or junior varsity person in this church or in any church waiting for an upgrade. Because marriage is ultimately a temporary arrangement given to teach us about spiritual union with Christ himself. So when you experience loneliness or sexual frustration, you need to recognize that underneath those longings, there is a deeper hunger of soul that only Christ himself could ever satisfy. And for all of our married folks, remember that we have the shadow, not the substance. And what I mean by that is, of course, marriage is a wonderful gift from God, but it is not God. It's a wonderful thing for your spouse to be like Christ, but they cannot be Christ. So don't expect your marriage to do for you, to complete you, to fulfill you, to give you a sense of identity and self-worth in a way that only God can. It'll collapse under that kind of expectation and pressure. And yet at the same time, The shadows of our marriages here and now are important because they're sacred shadows that reflect sacred mysteries, the mysterious union between Christ and his church. And if you've experienced or perhaps may one day experience the terrible sorrow of losing a spouse, then you need to know that Jesus 
intends to be the spouse that will never leave or forsake you. The spouse that even death cannot take away because he is risen indeed. So the reality beneath the shadow of all our earthly marriages is that God relates to his people like a husband. And so if you're a Christian, you have to get your mind around the truth that as part of the church, you're in a marriage relationship to Jesus, bound to him as your true husband. And this is not a teaching that Paul just came up with on the fly and decided to include in his letter to the Ephesians. This was a major theme found throughout the course of the scriptures. So I went, when I perform wedding ceremonies, I usually point out that human history, according to the story of the Bible, essentially begins with a wedding in the Garden of Eden and ends with a wedding in the new creation in the book of Revelation. So the Bible, and indeed human history itself, is bookended by weddings. And this is no accident. This was all, of course, a setup from the beginning. God drew up the blueprints to the world. And so as he designed humans and designed marriage, he did it in a way that would show us something of himself and his love. So throughout the scriptures, God speaks tenderly of himself as a husband. Listen to these passages from the Old Testament. Perhaps you know some of these. From Isaiah 54. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. And in Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And then basically the whole book of Hosea, which we're going to start next week, but just to read a few verses from that book, chapter 2, verse 14, the Lord says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. This is the story of the whole scriptures, God presenting himself to us as our true and perfect husband. And I won't even get into the Song of Solomon, which parents, you can thank me later for that. So to add to just all of this though, realize that the Bible, this was all said and written down in an age and in a place where it seems that marriage was not nearly as romanticized or valued for love as it is now. Uh, earlier this year, I don't know if you remember, but when we talked about what it means for the church to be a family, brothers and sisters, I cited scholars like Joseph Hellerman, which point out that the primary um, same generation relational bond was not typically husbands and wives, but rather brothers and sisters. Marriages were a way to build family alliances, to produce offspring. Passion and romance were far lower on the priority list for a marriage. And yet it's into that same culture that God reveals his love for his people with a radical display of public affection through the words in the scriptures. He uses tender words to describe himself as a faithful, kind husband. But perhaps for some of us, this description of God as our husband and his relationship to us being like that of a marriage does not sit well 
experientially. You know, if our day and age had a Facebook relationship status with marriage, it would be, it's complicated, which is one of the options that you can choose on Facebook for your relationship statuses. And what I mean by that is this, as a society, we're obsessed with love and yet jaded by it all at the same time. I mean, you simply can't count the number of love stories, romance movies, just on Netflix, right? And don't try it. It's not worth your time. You know, shows, songs, movies, and even in those that aren't strictly romantic, there's always some sort of love interest that, that shows up. And we can't get away from it, and we don't necessarily want to. You know, like, why did I even care about Jim and Pam's relationship in The Office? And I mean the comedy show The Office. No one in our office is named Jim or Pam. But I just found myself saying, watching the show, like, come on, Pam, break up with Roy. Get with Jim. He loves you. It's so obvious. And like, who cares about any of that? Apparently I did, you know, because deep down, we want love to win and we want love to last. But we also have found that the Disney version of love has disappointed us. Uh, blogger Sarah Capulet writes on this. She says, in the movies and books that we all treasure, we're mostly told that happily ever after exists and we just have to find the right soulmate to come together with. No self-analysis or work is needed, just the belief that love alone is enough. She goes on to point out in her article that happily ever after, happily ever after is not really anyone's lived reality. Even the best marriages can be very difficult at times. And none of them uh, would likely be what you would call a fairy tale. And those are the good ones. Many of us grew up in homes with not just imperfect marriages, but truly dysfunctional and broken ones. We've watched marriage fail to complete us and fulfill the happy ever after dreams that we were taught to anticipate. But the reason that marriage can wound us so badly is because it's so central to who we are and even to who God is. Professor Michael Reeves writes this. He says, a bad marriage is so painful and upsetting precisely because it mangles something so tenderly beautiful and good. We could go further. Marriage at its worst always manages to present the relationship between Christ and the church in photographic negative. It inverts the ultimate truth about marriage in any experience of faithlessness, cruelty, or coldness in marriage hurts ultimately because those things are unlike the marriage. So marriage matters. Marriage soars and marriage stings precisely because it speaks to our souls of the love that we were made for. So what makes us think that Christ will be to us a good husband? What makes us think that he'll actually come through on all these grand proclamations of eternal devotion. Well, Jesus doesn't just say that he loved the church. The end of verse 25 says, and he gave himself up for her. His love isn't just talk. It's a lot easier to say that you love someone, even in the most romantic, creative, awe-inducing, and I mean A-W-W-W-W-W-W-awe-inducing fashion you can imagine than it is to follow through on what love requires. When I graduated high school and left for college, I had just started dating uh, Ashley, my now wife, a couple of months before heading off. And I had written her this terribly sappy love song and even performed, sang it in front of a homecoming crowd. 
you know, undying love, the picture of it right there, right? But once I got to college, um, I kind of started doing my, my own thing. I had a lot to do. I was busy going to classes and acclimating. I was involved in college athletics and making new friends. And I did not call her at all my first week at school for a whole week. So I call her, you know, at the end of that week or something. Or, and I, um, she, you know, picks up and I'm just starting to tell her all about all the things I'm doing. You know, how's it going? You know, I met this person. This is awesome. I made a new friend and, you know, classes are going terrible, but I think I'll figure it out, blah, blah, blah. And then on the other end of the line, there was just this uncanny silence. And so I'm like, well, how are you? You know, how's it going? What's up with you? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm good. You know, I'm just glad you decided to call. And then light bulb comes on in Carson's little brain. And it's like, oh, 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 okay, okay. You wanted to talk, like talk. You didn't want to talk like every day, did you? Well, turns out that I was oblivious to the cost of love. And that it was going to take a lot more than sappy love songs to make a long-distance relationship work. Now, it turns out I would go on to discover the cost of love later when my parents would send me a $300 cell phone bill before unlimited plans and such existed. You know, there's no end to the number of love songs and stories out there. And I've tried to sample some of the best in my sermon prep for this week as my background sermon prep playlist runs. And I found, you know, the the greatest love, maybe the greatest love song, but definitely the greatest power, love power ballad ever written has to be, it has to be, journeys faithfully, right? Love in a music man ain't always what it's supposed to be. Oh girl, you stand by me. I'm forever yours. Dun, dun, dun faithfully. But as it turns out, not so much. The guy who wrote that for his wife got divorced shortly after the song was released and then went on to remarry two more times. Now, I don't know what the situation was, so I'm not trying to throw shade at the guy or at the song. I only say that to point out that it's much easier to profess your undying love than it is to do what love requires of you. So what did love require of Jesus? He gave himself up for her, it says. For him, love required a crown of thorns, a whip and a rod, spit from the mouths of his tormentors, nails driven through his hands and his feet. Love required carrying a heavy cross, suffocating under the weight of his own body and the weight of our sins. He freely handed himself over to death. And without a word, Jesus paid the cost that love required. His undying love was expressed through death. He gave himself up for her. And Paul makes this personal for you and me when he wrote in the book just before Ephesians in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the famous verse, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, you can personalize this. It's not just that Jesus loved the church generically and gave himself up for her generically, but if you're in his church, he loved and gave himself up for you. Now, there's more to be said. Why? Why did he do all that? The great interpretive question asked by toddlers everywhere, every day. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he go through all that? Why did he give himself up? Well, this shows us Jesus' design for the church his purposes for her. So what's his design for the church? Paul tells us that he might 
sanctify her, verse 26, which means that he might set the church apart for himself. That's what it means to be sanctified, to set apart for himself. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that Jesus doesn't want to be your insurance agent. He wants to be your husband. Jesus did not come to give himself up on the cross merely so you could have your sins forgiven and say, whew, no hell for me. Now I can go live like hell if I want to. Thank you, Jesus. You see, Jesus is not just interested in some sort of accident forgiveness policy. He's interested in a marriage covenant with you. He's set the church apart, chosen her, selected her as a man chooses one woman out of thousands to be his wife. Christ has chosen the church for an exclusive covenant love relationship. Verse 26 says that he set us apart and he made us clean. He made us fit to be with him. How? By cleansing her by the washing of water with the word. What does that mean? Washing of water with the word. You need to understand this imagery is not supposed to be like a romantic bubble bath for the church with candles and rose petals strewn about. This imagery means that when God set his love upon us, we were filthy. We needed a bath. We were alone and helpless, lying in a mess of our own making. And so he cleanses us by the word or by the message, the message of Christ, the gospel, the good news that even while we were still filthy, we were loved. Washing of water through the word means that while we were lying in our own filth on the side of the road, Christ came along and stepped into our mess, began to wipe off the grime and the blood of our rebellion and our sin. And by his work on the cross, he's now made us clean before God. What can wash away my sins? The hymn writer asks. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You see, this is a rags to riches story for us. And it's way better than Cinderella. Because Prince Charming, you know, only falls in love with her after he sees her at this exquisite romantic ball in a magical gown. Jesus set his love on us before we had anything that would attract him to us. Think Princess Diaries more than Cinderella. And yes, I grew up around three sisters. But if you remember the Princess Diaries movie, um, the one that truly loves Anne Hathaway's character in Princess Diaries is not the handsome jock, but it's the guy who saw her and noticed her and loved her before she was ever pretty. Jesus loved us before we were lovely. In fact, when we were quite unlovely, as you heard in the lyrics to Melody's song, that he saw the depth of our iniquity, and yet he loved us. And Jesus has more for us, too. He intends to do a serious makeover on the church to make us holy. You can ask the toddler's question again, so why? Why did he set us apart? Why clean us up? Just so we'd be like a squeaky, clean group of nice folks? No, there's more. Verse 27, he did all this, cleansed us, set us apart, so that he might present the church to himself. Like the giving away of a bride at a wedding, Jesus went through the pain of the cross so that he could be with us forever. This is the cry of every true lover. You just want to be together, to be with them He cleansed us and set us apart because he intends to be with us. And he also intends to make the church into something stunningly wonderful. He intends to present the church to himself. Hear what it says, in splendor. 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see that Jesus has a design for the church, for you, a future vision and a future version of you, of us, that is so stunning and so glorious that if you could see it right now, you'd almost be tempted to fall down and worship it. I mean, I truly cannot get my mind around what this will be like, what it would be like to have the darkest, most cancerous parts of my soul finally and fully removed. What will it be like to have our tear-streaked faces tenderly wiped dry by the hand of Jesus himself? What will it be like to behold a host of saints with all the spots of greed, materialism, lust, anger, division, apathy, pride, completely absent from our own hearts? What will it be like to be presented to Jesus Christ with no wrinkles of weariness, illness, grief, trauma, all gone? with nothing but radius, generous, humble, patient, healed, whole lovers of God. It'll be something like this. In Revelation 19, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And like this from two chapters over in that same book, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, this is God's people, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is Jesus' design and his plan for his church and is certain that he will accomplish it for he set his love on us from the past into the present and will carry it into the future. Do you see that in this passage? The subject of all these sentences is who? Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. That's love in the past so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He's loving us now in the present, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor one day in the future. Though we may only see the church now in rags, at times divided, yes. Distracted, yes. Shameful, yes. Hurtful, yes. But Jesus intends to have her spotless without a wrinkle or any such thing. I love the way the passage says it. Nothing like that. (laughs) Holy, without blemish, 
And that, my friends, will be a sight to behold. If you think about the most exciting, heart-skipping wedding you've ever attended, when the doors open and the people stand and the emotion in the room is palpable and everyone looks back to see a radiant bride coming down to meet her husband, that is just the dress rehearsal for the true wedding day when the church is presented to Christ in all of her splendor. This is Jesus' design for the church, his purpose, that we would be made to be with him for all eternity, radiant, holy, perfect. That's his design. So what does this demand of us? What does all this demand of us? Jesus' desire for the church, his, de- his design for the church, what does it demand of us? And I don't mean demand in the sense of Jesus slamming his fist on some heavenly table, making demands for us. But what is the only reasonable response that we might have in light of Christ's desire and his design for his church? And of course, it's simply this, that we be his bride, that we let him have us, all of us. Christ's love demands our exclusive commitment, trust, and devotion. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands what? my life, my soul, my all. And for some days, for some of us, we would rather sing that something more like love, so amazing, so, yeah, great, I guess, that it demands some time, some money, some effort. And for you, maybe Jesus feels more like your landlord to whom you pay rent rather than your husband. You've forgotten that he intends to be your bridegroom He rejoices over you with loud singing. He's interested in more than just your money, more than just completing some spiritual disciplines, more than your service for him, more than your evangelistic efforts, more than what you can do for him. He actually loves you. And you need to hear that again today. Or maybe for others of us, um, you're just scared to death of fully committing your life to God. Because, you know, that's like the biggest commitment that there is. And, and it is, you're right. And you're intimidated of the obligation, afraid of being all in. And you don't want to lose your freedom and your autonomy because you know that's part of the cost of love. But in Jesus Christ, you have a God who will never ask you to give anything for him that he hasn't already given for you. This is not one of those one-way relationships where you have to do all of the adapting, all the accommodating on your end. I mean, think about it. Moving out of heaven, taking on flesh, being nailed to a cross, I would call that an adjustment, a willingness to pay the cost of love up front. Um, I remember at my own wedding, my pastor challenged me when he was doing the ceremony as the husband to be ready to give up my life physically for Ashley if the need ever arose. And of course, I said that I would, and I believe that I would. But wouldn't it be nice, you know, to, to know if you could actually know what the person is going to do ahead of time in their commitments to you? Like, are, are they really going to come through for you? Are they really going to be there for you? Are they going to stay with you? Are they going to stay faithful to you? Would they lay their life on the line for you? Wouldn't it be nice to know that before you make the commitment? And of course, the only way to find out something so extreme would kind of put a damper on the wedding. There's no real way to know. But not so with Jesus. He is pre-committed to love you unto death. 
because he did. So you can know up front that this God will die for you before he ever asks a thing of you. And no other God will do that. No other gods that we would seek after or idols that we would live for in our lives. They'll demand that you die for them, but they won't die for you. Not so with Jesus. Now, I said that the Bible ends with a wedding, and that's true. But it ends, ends after the wedding scene with a wedding invitation. The very last chapter of the Bible, it says this. The spirit and the bride invite you. They say, come. And let the one who hears this say, come. And let the one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You see, the Bible ends with a wedding invitation like no other, that you are each invited to the wedding feast of Jesus Christ, not just as a guest, but as the beloved bride of Christ himself. And if you're here and you've never RSVP'd yes to that greatest invitation, you could do that today. Talk with a friend who brought you. I'd be glad to talk with you after our service. But for all of us, for the rest of us today, who need some help treasuring the church these days, how does this, how does this help us? Now, I can imagine what you're expecting me to say. You're expecting me to say something like this. Well, if Jesus loves a church like this, then you should too. But not exactly. That's not exactly what I'm going to say. I'm going to say this instead. If you are part of the church, then you need to know today that you are treasured by Christ immeasurably more than you can imagine. You're the apple of his eye, the joy of his heart. He breaks out in song spontaneously over you, over you. In all of your flaws and failures, he rejoices over you with loud singing. Can you receive that today? Can you, can you even handle that? Can you imagine the holy king of the universe beaming over you like a man beams over his radiant bride when she comes down the aisle? Receive that again today. And having received it, now look around at this church. When you leave, look at the people in the lobby, the people gathered in this building. Those who belong to Jesus are treasured in that same sort of way. And they each will one day be presented to Christ without spot or blemish. And so if all this is true, may we begin to see the church as Christ sees it so that we will have the power to love the church even as he loves it. Let's pray together. So Jesus, we receive again today your love. We thank you that through your word, you've revealed yourself to us as our true husband. And um, for Lord, anyone here who's not taking you up on the invitation to join you at that great wedding feast as your bride, that they would, they would consider there is no greater love to be found than what you've poured out for them. And Lord, for us, as we think about the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are all part of your bride. Help us, help us to see the way that you have treasured us so that we would be melted once again by your love and in turn give that to one another. And so we cannot wait, 
Jesus. We pray that the day would come quickly when you present us to yourself free of every spot, wrinkle, and blemish. I'm ready for that. And so even as we're about to sing, here is your church. We're standing here together. We're ready to rise and be with you forever. With love in our eyes, we look now to you, Jesus, and pray that you would come soon. Amen.